Thanks, Kurt. If you have a Bible, you want to open up to Genesis chapter 11. We're going to finish that chapter, pick up right where we left off in verse, verse 27, which I explained last week. It, that feels a little disjointed based on the chapters, the way they're laid out in our modern translations. But where we're picking up would be sort of the next uh, distinct section within the text set off by the phrase, these are the family records of, which we'll see at the start of verse 27. So we're going to pick up there, and we're actually going to run through chapter 12, verse 9. So get yourself situated there. We're dealing with an extremely significant section of Scripture This morning, the first three verses of Genesis chapter 12 are of immense importance. You don't have to have probably ever read the book, Oliver Twist. You don't even necessarily have to have seen the musical or the play to know what is its most memorable and also significant line in the play. It happens very early. Uh, Oliver and this group of, of people that he's eating with, have finished eating the portion of the meal that they were given. He sort of gets like almost bullied to be the person who goes up that day to the man serving uh, the meal with his empty bowl and he walks up and what does he say? Please, sir, I'd like some more. Can I have some more? That little interaction, short as it may be in the play or the book within the narrative is actually the impetus for everything that happens after that. Why is it that he gets sent away from the workhouse where he was having that meal? Because of that interaction. Leaves him in an, inter- an apprenticeship that is not good, that he runs away from. He ends up in London, he hooks up with Fagin, and the rest of the play takes off from there. Why does all of that happen? Please, sir, I'd like some more. Genesis 12 verses one, two, and three are of such significance within the biblical text that it leads John Piper to say the following, that those three verses are a point in history which will prove to be of such tremendous importance as to shape the course of the world, both in this age and in the age to come. What God promises to Abraham here lays the foundation for what is to come in the rest of the Bible's pages. Everything that happens is working toward the fulfillment of God's covenant promises to Abram, which have their sort of like seed here in Genesis chapter 12, verses one through three. And if, as John Piper said, you believe that God is in control of what happens in the course of human history, then this moment also lays the foundation for what God is doing as he advances everything in the universe toward the fulfillment of his will. Please, sir, I'd like some more, finds its sort of biblical parallel in God said to Abraham, Abram, go out. And everything takes off from there. We're actually going to do this sort of in three parts this morning. We're going to read the end of chapter 11 from 27 there to the end. There's a statement about this man, Terah, and his family. Then we're going to see God's call of Abraham in verses 1 through 3 in chapter 12. And then we'll see Abram's response in verses 4 through 9. And we're actually, rather than reading the whole passage at once, we're just going to take it in its parts and talk about it as we go. There are a couple of challenges in this, both this morning and as we continue to work through Genesis. If you've been with us since the start of this series... Uh, we initially said we were going to end our series on this passage, work through the early foundations of the first 11 chapters, see God's calling of Abram, Abraham, 
and then stop there. And as our pastoral staff was sort of talking about it, you know, we said, well, we could come back at some future point and pick up in Genesis chapter 12 and then finish the book of Genesis. But the more we thought about it, the more we thought, you know, like six years from now, and we say, we're starting a new series, turn to the middle of Genesis chapter 12. If you remember, six years ago, we left off, uh, we decided that that felt a little bit clunky. So we're going to continue our way through the rest of the book of Genesis. And there is a a couple perpetual challenges here to sort of put in front of ourselves as we do this. The first one is this. As Genesis starts to zoom in on certain figures within Abram's family and his family line, one thing that we have to do both as we're reading the book of Genesis and as we're engaging with it on Sunday mornings is continually remind ourselves whatever figure is of prominence on any given Sunday or in any given passage in Genesis, that figure is not the Savior. That figure is not the high point of scripture. They're an important figure. There's something that we can learn from them, but they are not the fulfillment of what God is trying to do within the pages of scripture, and they are not the perfect moral example that we are to follow. We can learn from their life, but we don't hold Abram or Isaac or Jacob or Joseph up and say, this is the person that we're trying to emulate. That's ever, only, always Jesus. And so we will be taking every passage of scripture, seeing what it is that we learn from that account or in that person's life, and ultimately how we see through that person to Jesus. And then the second thing that we've got to do, and we've got to be sort of mindful of, is that figuring out how to apply these Old Testament narratives to the life of a follower of Jesus in 2023 is a nuanced and a difficult challenge. And so we will be working carefully to see how it is that we take, like today, what God promises to Abram or Abraham and, and what that means for us as the people of God in the church thousands of years later. So we'll be doing that every week as well. If you've got it open, I'm gonna start reading in Genesis 11, verse 27. It says this, these are the family records of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in his native land in Ur of the Chaldeans during his father Terah's lifetime. Abram and Nahor took wives. Abram's wife was named Sarai and Nahor's wife was named Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Sarai was unable to conceive. She did not have a child. Terah took his son Abram, his son Lot, Haran's son, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife, and they set out together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years and died in Haran. Let's pause and make a couple of observations. Just two things that are worth pointing out here. The first is that Abram is not the oldest of Terah's sons. Now in Chapter 11, verse 26, right before where we started in chapter 11, verse 27, where we began, we saw Abram's name listed first. Okay, so if he's not the oldest, and it would be sort of the traditional way to handle these lists of sons by listing the oldest one first, why is this there? And how do you know he's not the oldest? You can jot this down if you want to go check it out later in, in math, some of the maths. Acts chapter 7, verse 4 tells us, sort of piece the details together, that Abram is actually youngest of Terah's sons. That it's actually Haran that's the firstborn, then Nahor, then Abram. 
Genesis 11.26, and then again in Genesis 11.27, list, list Abram first as a matter of significance rather than age. Why does that matter? Because familial blessing in this culture typically went from father to oldest son. Abram would not be the one in line for the blessing of Terah's life and Terah's wealth. But Abram's not going to receive blessing from Terah. He's going to receive blessing from the Lord. And Genesis is going to pick up that motif and run it throughout its pages. That God, by his grace, chooses and works and blesses according to his plans and his purposes. And those often move opposite or in contrast to the way that society and culture would expect it to. Younger sons receive the blessing. In this case, it's Abram. The most prominent case of that would be Jacob as opposed to Esau. Second observation. Sarai gets one biographical statement. We don't find out who her family is. We don't find out how her and Abram met one another. We don't find out you know, how it is that their marriage was either arranged, came to be about. We find out one thing about her. She's unable to conceive. She cannot have children. She's not had a child. Genesis is foreshadowing something significant with that, that the promise that Abram is about to hear from God should sound impossible. God is going to have to do something remarkable in order to bring that promise to fruition. What are those promises? Well, they come to us in Genesis 12, verses one through three. And as we work through what God has to say, how Abram responds, and we try to apply it, this is our landing spot this morning. That the people of God are called to distinction from the world in order to bring blessing to the world. Distinction for the sake of blessing. Genesis 12, verses one through three say this. The Lord said to Abram, go out from your land, your relatives and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. One big observation from the start here. How did Genesis chapter one begin? We got from nothing in the universe to everything in the universe because... God spoke. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and void and there was darkness. The spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. We went from nothing to everything because God spoke. That's how the history of the world began. How is the story of redemption begin? God's speaking. He calls a man named Abram and he says, I want you to leave everything behind. And then from nothing, God is going to bring the everything of redemption. And it begins when he speaks here. In the same way that we went from everything to nothing in the universe, or from nothing to everything in the universe, Abram is going to be taken from nothing to everything in terms of the history of redemption. That's going to culminate when Jesus, that John tells us who was the word and with God, steps down from heaven into the earth in order to do his redeeming work ultimately on the cross and out of the grave. God speaks. That's where this stuff begins. And what you have him speaking here is the beginning of a covenant that he's going to make with Abram. Remember back to Noah, we talked about how covenants typically 
work. They're different than a contract. Contract from a place of distrust. I don't trust you to do the thing that you say you're going to do. You don't trust me to do the thing that I say I'm going to do. So let's draw up a contract that binds us both in some way, shape, or form. A covenant is an agreement with mutual responsibility on both sides that comes from a place of trust. The covenant that God made with Noah was a little bit unique. It was universal, all of humanity. And it was unilateral. All the obligation was on God's side. This covenant that we get the sort of seed for here is going to function more like an ancient person would understand a covenant. It's not made with everybody. It's made with one man and his descendants. And there are obligations or responsibilities on both sides of that agreement. This covenant gets sort of like filled out through Genesis 12, 13, 14, and then it gets like ratified, if you will, in Genesis 15. We see it sort of build and what, how exactly does this covenant look? What is it, or how is it going to function? What are the responsibilities? What are the obligations? What are the blessings or the promises of it? And then in Genesis 15, it gets locked into place, if you will. What we have in Genesis 12, 1 through 3 is the beginning of that. Two things that Abram is supposed to do, six promises that God makes, and they come in parallel form. A command to Abram, three promises. A command to Abram, three promises. The first command is in the first part of verse 12. Go out. Go out from your land, your relatives, your father's house, to the land that I will show you. Then God makes three promises. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. Just kind of step through those. The command is to leave everything behind that Abram would have understood to have provided him with security, comfort, stability, blessing, land, relatives, home. The cost here for Abraham on his side of the covenant agreement is everything. He's going to leave everything behind and entrust himself to Yahweh. And in response, God says, I will make you into a great nation. That's the link back to Genesis 11. How can Abram be a great nation when we've already been told that his wife is unable to conceive? She can't have a child. How will there be a nation if she can't have children? God is announcing the reality that what happens in this man's life from this point forward will unquestionably be because of him. It won't be because of Abram. In fact, Abram's gonna try to take things into his own hands a little bit later and make an absolute mess out of things with a woman named Hagar. What God does through Abram will not be because of Abram. It will be because of God, by the grace of God, for the glory of God, for the good of both Abram and the rest of humanity, which we'll see shortly. I will make you into a great nation. Promise number two, I will bless you. That's a very expansive word. What exactly does God mean by that? If you were to sit down and read Genesis 1 through 12, verse three or verse nine, all in one chunk, some stuff ought to jump out at you as you read through this. Sin comes into the world in Genesis chapter three and there are curses that come along with sin. Now here is this man that God says, I will bless you. So something is going to happen within the context of this guy's life that's going to undo the curses of sin. God's going to do something in and through Abraham that will counteract or undo or work against the curses of sin that came into the world in Genesis chapter three. More specifically, 
it ought to signal to a reader that God is doing something through Abram that works toward the ultimate fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. From the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman, will come one who will crush the head of the serpent. So you'd be reading along and you would say, it's Abram. Here he is. This is the one who's going to put an end to the serpent and sin. Spoiler alert, you've got like 1,500 pages of Bible back here because it's not Abram that's going to do this. The idea of blessing, it is also worth saying here, would also mean like physical blessing that would replace or outpace what it is that Abram has given up in leaving his home and his family. The result of Abram fulfilling his side of the covenant agreement to go out is that God is going to act in such a way as to make his sacrifices pale in comparison with the Lord's blessing. And then third promise, I will make your name great. Again, if you were reading all of Genesis 1 to 12 in one sitting, you would say to yourself, that's interesting. Somebody else tried to make their name great. It just happened in Genesis chapter 11. The people of Babel came together. They pooled their resources. We're gonna build ourselves a city and a big tower into the heavens so that we can make a name for ourselves. Now here you are one chapter later and God says, leave everything behind, all the stuff that would make you think that you could have a great name and I will make your name great. This is like the juxtaposition of the people at Babel with the man that God is going to bring blessing into the world through. I will make your name great, not you, me. Then there's a second command. This is hard to see in English. The end of verse chapter, or chapter 12, verse two says, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And then God speaks again in verse seven, if you scan down, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. It's, it's difficult for us to get like the force of the Hebrew and the verbs and whatnot into English. And so the end of verse two, it kind of reads in English like God's making a statement about future reality. You will be a blessing. You'll go out, I'll make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And as a result, you will be a blessing. The actual force here is a command that's as forceful as the command to go out. Let me illustrate. It's like the fifth day of school. You've already gotten an email from your child's teacher that your child is having some behavior problems in class. So you're in the drop-off line outside of the school and you commit cardinal sin of putting the car in park rather than just continuing to roll. And you get out and you go around to your child's side of the car. You swing the door open, they hop out of the car, you get right down eye level and you say, you will be good today. Did you just predict the future? Were you like begging and pleading with your child? Like what was going on when you said you will be good today? Your child understands they were just told, be good. It's a command. That's what's happening here at the end of Genesis 12, verse two. You will be a blessing. Be a blessing. That's the command. And then God makes three promises. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who treat you with contempt. It means that the nations that oppose the redemptive work that God is doing through Abram, they'll find themselves outside of God's blessings. Those who receive the redemptive work that God is doing through Abram, they will find themselves blessed as a result. He says, I will bless 
all the peoples of the earth through you. Think about the irony to Abram. I can't have children, my wife and I, yet we are going to be a great nation. I have nothing to bless people with, and God has both just commanded that I be a blessing and told me that all the nations of the earth, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through me. Through what? I have nothing with which to bless people. I've given up everything by leaving my family and my land and my home. And now you're saying, be a blessing with my zero to all the nations of the earth. How is this possible? In Genesis chapter 10, we saw that kind of horizontal genealogy that laid out all the people groups of the nations of the earth, 70 of them, which is a picture of like completeness or fullness. God says every single one of them will be blessed because of you. And then last down there in verse seven, the Lord appears and he says, Abram to your offspring, I will give this land, the land of Canaan that he's standing on. Also, again, Abram is like, I already left my father's land and I wasn't even in line to receive it. I'm not the oldest. And so now I'm looking around in this foreign place and God says, it'll be this land that I will give you and your descendants. Zoom out really quickly. We need to start to try to thread the needle of application here. If you're familiar with sort of like the New, New Testament scripture, if you've been around church for a while, then it's pretty, like we pretty quickly make the jump to like, okay, the Israelite people, that's like the church today. The New Testament, specifically in Romans and Galatians, tells us that all who share the faith of Abraham are the line of Abraham. It's not about physical descent, but spiritual descent. The way Paul says it is that not all Israel, physical descent, is truly Israel, spiritual descent or spiritual inheritors. So the question deserves to be asked, church, has God promised us land, prosperity, and children? And has God made a promise to the church that through the church, all the nations of the earth will receive land, prosperity, and children? The short answer is no. The longer answer requires a longer answer. There are those that would preach a health and wealth sort of prosperity gospel and try to like misappropriate this verse and its promises to Abram as direct promises to the church. This explanation is, will kind of like flesh out over the weeks to come, but I, I wanna lay its foundation this morning. I wanna do so through one very specific statement that Paul makes in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20. He says, for every one of God's promises is yes in Jesus. Therefore, through him, we also say amen to the glory of God. How do we think about these promises in Genesis 12 to Abram and the life of the church today? Well, all of God's promises to Abram find their ultimate yes in Jesus. Now, all who are in Christ receive in Christ the promises of the Old Testament. Let's just take the different categories. What does that mean for children? Well, Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the promised seed, both of the woman in Genesis 3.15 who will crush the serpent's head and also of these siblings or descendants of Abraham. Jesus is the one that all of this is leading to. He's the ultimate fulfillment of that. And so the children of Abram, 
now includes people from every nation, every tribe, every nation, every tongue, not just the Israelite people. And that means that genealogies are not the way to know who is of the people of God and who is not. We share the faith of Abraham, not like the bloodline of Abraham. What about the promise of land? Is this about, like for the church today, is this about property? Are we talking about like, we're going to, the, the people of God are going to own every square inch of the globe and like hold the deeds and the land titles? No, we're not talking about that. The New Testament shifts this in two ways. The New Testament talks about the whole earth a lot, but what it's talking about there is that the area of the kingdom, the rule and the reign of God, will extend to all the nations of the earth. So the spiritual line of Abram will reach to the ends of the earth and there will be in every tribe, every nation, every tongue like a flag planted for the rule and the reign of Christ in that place and it will extend over every inch of the earth. The other way that the New Testament shifts this is that it talks about the inheritance that followers of Jesus will receive. First Peter chapter one, verse four, Peter says, your inheritance is in heaven imperishable, undefiled, kept for you. The picture in Revelation is not of like followers of Jesus buying up all the property in a place. The picture in Revelation is that there's a new heaven and a new earth and this new city comes down out of heaven and all of God's people from every tribe, nation, and tongue will inhabit that place. There's your inheritance. There's the land that God's people will ultimately inherit one day. That's because of Jesus. What about prosperity? Jesus radically shifts our understanding of what blessing and prosperity truly are. In the Beatitudes, Jesus says that there's a certain type of person who receives the kingdom, is comforted, inherits the earth, is filled, receives mercy, receives God, will have great reward in heaven. That person is one who has faith in Jesus. They've got the faith of Abram and they will be blessed indeed, but those blessings are in Christ, not in worldly comfort or prosperity. Our blessings as followers of Jesus, our promises as followers of Jesus are wrapped up in him, not in the stuff of this world. In fact, Jesus has almost nothing to say about the prosperity of his followers. He speaks repeatedly about the blessings of his followers, but those blessings are entirely in him, not in worldly stuff or worldly comfort. And so the New Testament understanding of these promises to Abram is that they're found in Jesus, where there's a greater nation, not just one bloodline, but all the families and nations and tribes of the earth. There's a greater name than Abram's. We proclaim the name of Jesus, not the name of Abraham. There's a greater land that awaits us and a greater blessing than worldly wealth. There are incredible promises in this unfolding covenant with Abram, but we have to be sure that we understand them correctly in our day, lest we end up expecting from God that which we are neither due nor entitled to. Now look at verse four. I'm gonna read through the end of our section in verse nine. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the side of Shechem at the Oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. 
The Lord appeared to Abram and said to your offspring, I'll give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he moved on to the hill country east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. He built an altar to the Lord there and he called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram journeyed by stages to the Negev. How does Abram respond to God's call and promises that he's just received? We're not told anything that Abram says. It's not until Genesis chapter 15 that we're gonna be told that Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. But Genesis chapter 12 gives you the narrative description of what that belief looked like. What did it entail? Two things, obedience and action. Abram packs up all of his stuff, takes Lot, his wife, all their possessions, and he heads out from Haran and he comes to Canaan, stops at a place called Shechem. That's a really important Old Testament site. In Deuteronomy, the nation of Israel is gonna be gathered there at Shechem and God is going to call them to choose. Are they going to follow and serve him? Are they going to follow and serve something else? In the book of Joshua, at the end of Joshua's life, he's gonna give one final charge to the nation of Israel. He delivers that at Shechem. In the reign of Solomon as the last king over a unified Israel, the kingdom gets taken away from Solomon. It's split into north and south, Israel and Judah, a different king over both. That split happens at Shechem. So if, you got, if you're like a note taker in your Bible, you wanna circle that location. It shows up throughout the Old Testament as a very important spot. What happens at that spot here? Abram goes to the site of Shechem. The Lord appears to him there, promises to give his offspring the land that he's standing on, and Abram builds an altar. He's been obedient to the Lord, left everything, taken all of his stuff. Now here in the midst of Canaan, people who don't worship and follow the Lord, he sort of like plants his flag, build an altar here. It's worth noting one other thing that's sort of difficult for us to see because biblical geography is hard. If I told you that a few weeks ago, my wife and I went on vacation to Colorado and we drove, we packed up everything, we loaded up here in Kansas City, uh, we drove through Lawrence, yuck. We built an altar among the pagans there. <laughs> it's a KU fan just nodding disapprovingly toward me. Then we, then we kept going. We went through Topeka. We went through Manhattan. We got to Hayes and Colby and, and Lyman. And then we finally made it to Denver. You would understand that we moved what direction? West. The entire narrative thus far in Genesis has been moving which direction? East. Further and further away from like the presence and the blessing of God. At every juncture, Adam and Eve sin, they go east. Cain sins, he goes east. At our Noah's descendants, they, they keep moving into the eastern hill country. And all of a sudden, God calls a man and promises him blessing and he goes west. Back toward like the sort of like figurative or metaphorical presence of God. And so he goes from Ur to Canaan to Shechem to Bethel to Ai to the Negev. He's moving back toward the blessing of God. That's hard for us to see. But in his obedience to the call and God's promise, he's moving toward God and blessing rather than away like everything has been moving up to this point. The second thing that we see here is that Abram worships. So he's obedient in his action. 
and he's worshipful in his practice. He builds an altar, right? In fact, he builds two of them, one there at Shechem and another one in between Bethel and Ai in verse eight. We're also told that he calls upon the name of the Lord. We talked about that earlier in our Genesis series, that that would be like prayer and proclamation. So here he is in this land of Canaan among people that don't worship the Lord and he's building altars. That's not just like piles of rocks. It's not just like ornate building projects. That's a statement. Like I'm worshiping the Lord right here among people that don't know him, praying and proclaiming who he is. It's worship. How do we know that Abram believed the Lord? His worship and his obedience demonstrate it. There's outward evidence that by the time you get to Genesis 15, you're like, well, yeah, of course, he believed, obviously. Look at his obedience. Look at his worship. Again, another application here. This is low-hanging fruit, but it'd be negligent not to say it. The outward evidence of our faith in Jesus as the people of God ought to involve obedience in action and worship in practice. Obedience and submission to Jesus grow as we walk in relationship with him. Your obedience isn't gonna save you. It's not the obedience that is credited to Abraham as righteousness. It's the belief. The obedience is the demonstration of that faith. Your obedience gonna be perfect? No, you're not Jesus. And you will wrestle with sin and with your flesh every single day of your life until you arrive in glory. Your worship, isn't going to save you. Abram worshiped the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abram went to church and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abram sang the right words to the song on the right key. Some of you who can't sing are like, praise the Lord that that's not the requirement. No, Abram believed and his belief was evidenced in his obedience and in his worship. The Bible pictures worship as an attitude and a posture of the heart that yields itself to the glorification of God in all things at all times without giving itself to something lesser. That's what Abram does. In the middle of a place that does not know Yahweh, he yields his heart to the Lord, commits to glorifying him in that place and not yielding to their idols or to something lesser. He worships and he obeys. And those two things ought to feed one another. As my heart grows in worship, so too should my longing for obedience. And as I'm sanctified and I grow in my holiness and I learn to obey the Lord, my worship is refined, it's purified. That sanctification process, fueled by the Holy Spirit within us, it builds obedient action, worshipful practice within the life of a follower of Jesus in such a way that the faith that we possess is obvious because the overflow of our heart is biblical. Tara's family, God's call, Abram's response. I wanna step back and conclude with sort of like one big application for this church, for you as an individual follower of Jesus, for the big C church as we see it in our culture today. How do we take this and apply it? One of the things I think we lose sight of in this passage, at least I do, is that this is the description of an adult man this is a 70 some years old who sees the Lord in sparkling clarity and is called by him and he gives up everything in order to follow. Like wherever in Genesis 12, 13, 14, 15, you would position Abram's salvation moment, this is an adult individual whose life is radically changed by faith in a saving covenant God. 
Like this is the kind of thing where if a 70-year-old individual came to faith in our congregation, like we'd be standing up and applauding the grace of the Lord and his goodness and his faithfulness to a person for 70-some years and, and then they give themselves over to obedience to the Lord. Like, oh, we would be just rejoicing. That's what happens for Abraham here. And he gives up everything in order to follow. And the Lord says, you are to be distinct from the place where you live in order that you might be blessing to the world. And the people of God, we're called to distinction from the world in order to bring blessing to the world. This is the, please, sir, can I have some more moment of scripture? And we're still living on the backside of that in light of that. And so I want to describe sort of like ditches on either side of that statement. And what I think often happens in our context and cultural moment right now is that people fight from those two ditches. Now I'm naming poles on the ends of a spectrum. I realize that not everyone's a caricature of one side or the other. But I think we find ourselves somewhere along that spectrum, typically to one side or the other, and that can shift over the course of our life. But let me name both sides and then talk about what I think is the biblical picture. There are those who want to be distinct from the world, called out, and we understand that, but we want to be called out from the world and then content to condemn the world. Oh, I'm separate and I'm better. I'm separate and I'm different and I'm just sort of rubbing my hands together waiting for the world to get what they deserve. I'm watching the events of the world take place around me and quietly chuckling inside as the wrath of God falls on sinful people because they deserve it. But not me, I'm distinct. I'm called out. I'm different. I'm better. That's one ditch. The other ditch is the desire to be blessing to the world without the difficult difference of discipleship. I want to be blessing to the world, but I'm unwilling to be distinct from the world. I want to be like the world and try to be blessing to the world. And then those two sides like war against each other about like who's the better Christian, who's following Jesus better beautiful pictures of the kingdom of God ruling and reigning within an individual or a community of Jesus followers happens when we understand that we're called to distinction from the world in order to bring blessing to the world. Where we joyfully embrace obedient action in heartfelt, worshipful practice while understanding what our blessings are, Jesus, where they're found, Jesus, and what it is that we hold out as blessing to the world, Jesus. And we refuse to let one side of that negate the other or trump the other. And we're willing to like live in the tense middle spot of that where we're distinct and rejecting the easy path of just condemning everyone else. We're distinct from the world and willing to acknowledge it. Like, look, I get it. The way I live makes no sense to you. My desire to be obedient to scriptures in action and in posture and in attitude and in tone, it makes no sense to the world around us. I've been called to give up everything in this world that would provide me with security and identity and comfort in order to follow Jesus. And I'm willing to be distinct in that. 
but I want to be distinct for a purpose. And that purpose is not so that I can pronounce condemnation to the world. It's so that ultimately I can hold out blessing to the ends of the earth. That there's something better than the junk that you live for, than the damage that you do to yourself and to the people around you as you pursue the dark and sinful and broken desires of your heart. And that better thing is not a promise of worldly wealth or promise of worldly blessing. It's all found in Jesus. And I'm willing to be distinct to be a blessing so that Jesus looks beautiful and magnificent and wonderful. We reject the easy road of condemnation. We reject the easy road of desiring to bless without the difficult difference of discipleship. And instead, we walk the faithful road of distinction for the sake of blessing. I wanna illustrate with two short accounts from the Old Testament. One you're more familiar with, one you might not be. The first one comes from the book of Daniel. In the book of Daniel, Babylon sweeps in and takes the Israelite people off into exile and Daniel and some other Jewish individuals get placed in this like boarding school sort of setting where Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, is going to kind of like get them to assimilate to Babylonian life and Babylonian culture and take the Jewishness out of them. And right at the beginning, as that's happening, Daniel says, I won't eat that meat sacrificed to idols. Why? I'm not supposed to. Give me vegetables and water. Check in seven days. See how I look. A little later on, a big gold statue built and everyone's supposed to bow down and worship it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, I won't worship that because I'm not supposed to. Throw me in the furnace. It's fine. They're willing to be distinct, understanding the costs of being distinct. But they're not distinct in order to condemn They're distinct because that's what faithful obedience to God looks like. And when you read the book of Daniel and you just like follow the like life of Nebuchadnezzar, does the guy become a believer in Yahweh or not? It's hard to sort of wrap your mind around, but read the narrative, decide for yourself, and then ask yourself, why does that happen? It's because God works through Daniel's willing to be distinct. He becomes a blessing to the leader of the largest empire at the time. The second illustration comes from the same era in Israel's history, but it comes from the prophet Jeremiah. He's letting the people of Judah know Babylon's coming and they're gonna take you into exile. And the Lord speaks a word of comfort through Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 29. He says, look, when Babylon comes and they cart you off to foreign places, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, Find wives for yourselves, have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there, do not decrease. Pursue the well-being of the city I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for when it thrives, you thrive. I'm sending you out there. I'm dragging you out of Jerusalem, which is impossible for you to even conceive, and I'm gonna drop you in a foreign place and you be distinct for the sake of blessing. Plant vineyards there. Raise families. Work for the good of that place. Pray to the Lord on its behalf because when it thrives, you will thrive. And you can flip that around. When you thrive, it will thrive. Be distinct. 
follower of Jesus, be set apart in your obedience and your worship according to the word of the Lord. Do not cave on those items, but be distinct for the sake of blessing. To show the world a beautiful picture of what life and fellowship with Jesus looks like. To hold out to the world the truth that all blessing is found in him. And as you go about your distinctness, do so with the blessing of the world clear in your mind. Be distinct, the nations might know about the blessing of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning, for your word. God, I pray for myself and for individuals here within our congregation. I pray for us as a church and for the larger church in our nation. God, would you capture the attention of our hearts with a need for distinctness from the world around us? God, show us clearly from your word what that looks like, what it entails in action, what it looks like in posture and tone and attitude. God, give us courage to be distinct in the culture and the society that we live in, God, but give us a heart and eyes that want to be distinct that we might be a blessing to the nations. Oh, God, in our distinctness, would Jesus look beautiful? Would we call on his name and prayer and proclamation that people might see all of the blessing that's found in him. God, sanctify your church. Make us distinct. But give us a distinctness that holds forth the blessing of Jesus to our neighbors and to the ends of the earth. And we pray this in his matchless name. Amen. Amen. Let's sing.